Hi, this isn't the ordinary guy from the Brains Meta podcast. www.brainsmeta.com. And this isn't Steve Nerlick from Cheap Astronomy. www.cheapastro.com. But this is Astronomy Outreach. And what we're going to talk about today is science communication, especially related to astronomy. And um, maybe I should put down some dot points to start with. I thought you were doing well there. Eh? <laughs> I was going to ask you, what is your motivation for doing your Brains Meta podcasts? What, what are you out to achieve? Well, I guess this starts in a galaxy not that far away and not too long ago. I was watching a television news program and as you may know watching commercial television they tend to dumb things right down i was watching this particular commercial news program and they were talking about some kind of medical research and i don't have a medical background by any means but i knew enough about the science to know that what they were talking about was absolute rubbish so i started throwing things at the television and uh, my other half said well if you think you can do better why don't you and I thought, hold on, maybe I should try and do better. And so uh, that's where my impetus came in to start doing my science communication. So how about you, Steve? Well, the title of Cheap Astronomy comes from my thinking about what our ideal target audience is for astronomy outreach and science advocacy more generally. And I think our target audience are parents with children so the parents have gone through their phase of education, they've got married, the children have come along, so they're parents and suddenly their cash flow is very limited, but at the same time they're in that ideal position of passing on knowledge to the next generation. So I think in that context what we want to do is give people permission to do everything that the internet seems to tell you not to do, which is to, to go down to the local department store buy the cheapest telescope on the floor and bring it home in a box, put it together, be completely comfortable with the fact that it's a crappy, wobbly, not particularly high-resolution telescope, but you can point it at the sky and see the rings of Saturn, show your kids, everyone gasps with amazement. You do that two or three times, and then you put it in the garage next to all that gym equipment that you've never really used either, but that's okay. It's a once-in-a-lifetime thing that you've done, your kids will never forget, and, you know, maybe there's a chance they will grow up with a burning interest to pursue a, a scientific career. Mm. Uh, Mrs. Ordinary Guy uh, has a quite cheap telescope. It's uh, I don't particularly know what brand it is. I don't know if I can identify a brand on it, but it's a Newtonian. We've pulled it out probably about two times in the last five years. And we actually have a young child and he's actually quite interested in the stars and looking at the different formations and making up his own constellations. And he got to the point where he got so interested in it, he used to point at things and ask me what they were and I'd tell him. And one day, uh, Grandpa OG came along and he was holding OG Junior up on his shoulder, pointing up at the stars and saying, look at that bright one over there. Isn't that a bright star? And a young Mr. Four-year-old turned around to Grandpa and said, that's not a star, that's Venus. And then uh, Grandpa looked a little bit embarrassed, thinking, I've just been told off by a four-year-old. Hmm, excellent. I think that's how it works. You just give people 
a bit of exposure to it when they're young and you, you plant a seed. From little things, big things grow, as Paul Kelly said once upon a time. Hmm, indeed. Once we get these seeds planted and have enough people interested, one of the things that I'm trying to achieve in terms of my science communication is to try and get a little bit more awareness out there on science and astronomy from the government community. So there was a quote from, I don't remember who it was, to say, in 1969 we had the Apollo, in 1981 we had the space shuttle, and now we've got nothing. That would be great progress if we were going backwards in time. (laughs) It would be a great thing if everyone in our current generation was at least aware that 65 million years ago the dinosaurs were wiped out by a 10-kilometre diameter object striking the Earth. That's an extremely rare event, but at the same time... It's a non-zero probability. Exactly, yeah. So it would be kind of sad to have had our species evolve with this this extraordinary talent that we do have of the capacity to develop technology to do quite remarkable things and not not to apply that to this ever-present risk, however remote it may be in the short spans of times that we are alive as individuals. Um, But where do you see us going in the, the next 20, 30, 50 years? Because... As, as everyone knows, the planet isn't getting much healthier. We might delve into a little bit of uh, science fiction almost here, but what do you see as A, where we might be going, and B, where we should be going in, in the medium to long-term future? Hmm. A good way to think is to wonder how we will get to Mars, which most people think of as the next step that we should take after having landed on the moon. I mean, Mars is a whole different ball game. whereas the moon was three days away, it's about seven months away with our current technology. So that there's a whole bunch of risks associated with being in empty space for seven months, both with issues of radiation and also muscle wastage and skeletal degradation. And it's just sort of cramped and uncomfortable and there's no sunshine and it doesn't sound like a lot of fun. Mm. There there probably are some adventurous people who would volunteer for the mission, but Mm. it's not something I want to do. (laughs) (laughs) The, The thing that I keep thinking of is about even though we may have the willingness to do it and we may find people who are happy to on a one way ticket to a life of adventure, if you want to call it that, is the resourcing, so as much as you might want to recycle water and things like that, you'll need food and you'll need some kind of uh, energy sources because as you get further from the sun, the ability to generate electricity degrades. We may have the intent, but is it really feasible with the technology set that we understand right now? I agree, and I think that's where we come back to the issue of climate change and the impact that we are currently having on our planet. If you want to develop the essentially unimaginable technologies that we will need, we need to do something to sustain ourselves for the next 10, 20, 30 years. We probably need at least 100 years to become a truly space-faring species. Mm -hmm. 
So to get that far, we need to give ourselves the time to sustain ourselves on this planet until we develop those technologies and have, have sufficiently robust economies that a certain proportion of our population can go to university and do research and not be racing around doing things that just earn money or make food or, or whatever. Mm. And I, I think there is always a risk that everyone just... You know, they get born, they grow up, and suddenly the internet's available, and they never really put thought into why the internet ever became possible, mm-hmm. and it's all about a long history of technological development mm-hmm. and people being willing to invest money in fairly arcane research, some of which involved dead ends. But at the end of the day, if you go through that process, something good comes of it. Mm. And this hints at something that's happening quite a bit in the Western world, at least, in that um, a lot of funding for science research seems to be tied to almost immediate economic outcomes. So they say, we'll prove the value of this research. And I just keep thinking, imagine trying to force that way of thinking on Einstein back in the early uh, 1900s. We will fund you to do your research on relativity, if you can tell us what it means. Mm. And and at that point, much of a genius as he was, he would never have uh, been able to consider things like GPSs and satellites and so on 100 years into the future. It's fundamental science that needs to be done before we can get to the next step. Yes, I agree. All right. Well, um, thank you for that. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for listening. This is Steve Nerlick from Cheap Astronomy www.cheapastro.com Cheap Astronomy offers an educational website where education and research might avoid us going the same way as the dinosaurs. Apart from the birds, of course. No ads, no profit, just good science. Bye! Not too many years ago, we saw this wonderful ad on TV for the George Foreman Grill. And I thought, oh, that sounds like a good idea. We bought it, used it once, and it's been in the cupboard ever since. But I can still say I can pull it out at any time and use it if I want to. I don't know if there's a real point to that one. But <laughs> was he a boxer? He, he was. Um, <laughs> uh, he was most famous for um, fighting against Muhammad Ali. Was that the rumble from the jungle? Or? Yeah, that's the one. Yeah.